Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. All right, this is episode 44 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, December 13th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious. Last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Okay, now coming up, we've got the FBI apparently setting up a Republican congressman, Biden claiming there's no way, well, I can't read it anymore. Somebody took it away from me. Biden claiming there's no way There was no way to avoid the terrorist attack that killed 13 U.S. service members in Afghanistan and Chris Wallace leaving Fox News to go to CNN online. Hey, Chris, don't let the door hit you, okay? All right, um, the first, let me say thank you and direct you to one of our wonderful sponsors that makes it possible for us to do this thing every day. Now, if you tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You'll be glad you did. All right. I don't know. Did I mention? Did I mention? There is one journalist who has covered the plight of the January 6th political prisoners 
better than anybody else. So I'm honored to announce the great Julie Kelly from American Greatness will be on the Doc Washburn Show Wednesday at 12.05 Eastern, 11.05 Central. Don't miss it. Whatever you do, don't miss it. All right. Now, like I say, coming up, we got to talk about the FBI setting up a, a, a congressman. We got to talk about Biden's insanity, claiming there was no way to avoid the terrorist attack that killed 13 U.S. service members in Afghanistan. And Chris Wallace leaving Fox News and everything else. First of all, let me share this with you. The great independent journalist Jordan Schachtel saying, how does a brand new strain of the Rona make it to virtually sealed off Australia overnight? Now, you either believe the fear narrative or you think deeper about this issue and realize that they just started testing for Omicron. So Omicron is probably not a new strain at all. He says, I believe Ethical Skeptic has done some work on this front. Check out his feed on Twitter. But if Omicron is that contagious to have come onto the scene a matter of weeks ago, nothing is stopping it, and the ship sailed a long time ago. If it's not that contagious and has already surfaced in the Australian police state, chasing it down is still a fool's errand. Well, not to mention the fact, Jordan, that the overwhelming majority of people they say are testing positive for Omicron variant are fully vaccinated and not to mention the fact jordan that they say everybody who gets it has a mild cold but they want you to be terrified they want you to be terrified of mild cold-like symptoms and that's it that's it all right the great john cass columnist in chicago has a new article out at johncastnews.com entitled Jussie Smollett, Lest We Forget. And he says, now that entertainer and Obama White House star Jussie Smollett has been convicted on multiple counts of faking an anti-gay, anti-black, anti-Trump hate crime against himself, what do we hear? Well, we hear a predictable chorus from woke media world. And here's what they say. Let it go. Forget it. Leave it alone. Yes, he's guilty, and that's a good thing. But let's never speak of Jussie Smollett again. The mention of his name vexes us. Hush, please. Just let it go. Really? Let it go. Just forget about it. I ask you, qui bono, who profits by not speaking of Jussie Smollett again? Who profits by pretending this didn't happen? The politicians who joined him in screaming about hate crimes and lynching and media that carried Jussie Smollett's hateful and dangerous hoax, they profit by your forgetting. But the public doesn't profit by letting it go. The rule of law doesn't profit by letting it go. Confidence in our system of justice isn't strengthened by forgetting. It's weakened by forgetting about Jussie. The high priests of grievances 
would rather we just let Jesse Smollett go away because he failed an epic fashion like Homer of the Odyssey and the Iliad. And, the Iliad. and now he embarrasses these high priests of grievances. But not everyone's so gullible. Not everyone wants to stick their idiotic head in the sand. One woman stood up, and with all the talk and all the voices going round and round the Jussie Smollett saga, and with some telling you to forget it and move on, and others shaking their fists at the wrong clowns in this clown show, it would be a shame if you didn't remember the one woman who had the courage to stand up, retired Judge Sheila O'Brien. Now, most people in the sound of my voice are hearing her name for the first time, but we do have a number of listeners in Illinois who probably know a little bit more about the details of this case. Frankly, I had forgotten myself how after the Chicago prosecutor, Sheila Fox, dropped the whole thing, dropped the 16 charges from the grand jury, Jussie Smollett wound up being charged and having to go to court anyway. I'd forgotten. So thank God John Cass is writing it up here. Our Illinois listeners are like, no, 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 no. We didn't forget anything. Okay, retired Judge Sheila O'Brien was the one who had the guts to stand up and do something about this. Her dad was a cop. Her mother was a nurse. They raised her to not let things go. Judge Sheila O'Brien is the one who heroically pushed for a special prosecutor in the Jussie Smollett case, incurring the wrath of the political class. And about an hour after the guilty verdict, after I was done playing Talking Head on TV, I called her. Judge O'Brien said, John, it's not about me. Twelve people did their job and upheld their oaths as jurors as a testament to our system of justice. It was never about me. It was about our system of justice. The law demanded a special prosecutor. The court did the right thing, and a jury fulfilled their oath. Yes, but she was the one who forced the issue. Judge O'Brien was the one who demanded an accounting. If you care about the criminal justice system, if you don't think politics should put its greasy thumb on the scales of justice, if you believe half the crap you see on those television courtroom dramas when some actor makes the big speech about big justice, you won't forget. You'll remember her, Sheila O'Brien. Naturally, there are others who desperately want to forget. It's all been so embarrassing. Although those who are most acutely mortified by Smollett's conviction, at least those in media who have half their wits, have the good manners not to tell us to shut up and forget. Instead, they ignore it and change the subject. Hoping Jussie just goes away. Hoping he just disappears. Or they pick up some other head to fix on their rattlesticks and shake it and scream about demons to direct public anger elsewhere. In this, like that gluttonous little boy ostentatiously ignoring the crumbly remains of the blueberry pie he attacked before dinner. Forgive me. But I'd rather not shut up about Jussie just right now. Instead, I think we should thank him. Because by telling and retelling his lies in court, by perjuring himself before the jury and the judge, he's actually done America a great service. He exposes 
the fetid alchemy between the dying corporate legacy media and elite Democrats who used his mewing to stoke racist and racial division for votes. These are the high priests of the new religion, and it sanctifies victimization for profit and power. They falsely seized on Kyle Rittenhouse of Kenosha as a racist. He wasn't. And Nicholas Sandman of Covington, Kentucky as a racist. He wasn't. And many others who weren't racist. Without stoking racial strife, how would they motivate their voters? Ooh. Are there horrible people among us who are racist? Well, of course. Should they be punished if they violate somebody else's rights? Well, of course. Should the politicians and media that stoke this have known better than to buy his story and regurgitate it, screaming on media platform after media platform with their hair on fire? A reasonable person might think so. But they didn't care if they regurgitated a lie. They wanted to use Jesse Smollett. They didn't care if he was lying. They weren't worried about the damage it could cause. Whether his fantastic story may have sparked racial violence in Chicago and elsewhere across the country, they had their politics to worry about. They wanted outrage. They wanted votes. So they used him, and he used them. And now that Jesse Smollett has been exposed as a liar by a jury in Chicago, they much rather we move on before we can explore this destructive alchemy of the media-slash-political elite and the damage it has done. I know who wants to leave Jesse Smollett alone and let it all go. He says, look at the glowing, smiling women in the image at the top of this column. Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox and Vice President Kamala Harris in happier times. By the way, I apologize. I think I gave Kim Fox the wrong first name earlier. Anyway, the photo comes from a gushing Kim Fox tweet about her BFF, Kamala Harris. After the Smollett story broke, when Chicago police detectives were pulling his story apart from the tuna sandwich at Subway to the fake silky noose, Smollett wore like a scarf. Chicago prosecutor Kim Fox was communicating privately with former Michelle Obama chief of staff Tina Chen about Jussie Smollett. See, Michelle Obama was a big fan of Jussie, and her former chief of staff, Tina Chen, was a big fan of Jussie. If you've seen the old White House video of his crooning performance, they were quite excited. So, Chicago State Attorney Kim Fox said she had recused herself from the case. Only problem was she had not recused herself from the case. Her office said she had only talked about recusal in the rhetorical sense. I remember when a Kim Fox aide told me those words, and I thought then, as now, that those were weasel words. Trying to cover up for a lie. As if by magic, Kim Fox bathed Jussie Smollett in the waters of the Chicago way. 
dropping 16 grand jury counts against him and in the process destroyed what was left of her reputation. But in doing so, she pronounced him clean of hate crime fakery. And now, 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 now she's trying to gaslight people. So Chicago State Attorney Kim Fox's statement after the guilty verdict on Jussie Smollett was something like this. The jury has spoken. While the case has garnered a lot of attention, we hope as a county we can move forward. At the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, we'll continue to focus on the important work of this office, prioritizing and prosecuting crime. Now, this is patently ridiculous coming from Kim Fox, one of the rogue, woke prosecutors across the country. Chicago is ground zero in the woke prosecutor phenomenon, which is becoming a serious problem for Democrats because, strange as this may seem, voters don't like becoming victims of violent crime. Kim Fox has, by her policies, encouraged those smash-and-grab orgies we see on the news. As a social justice warrior, Kim Fox drops cases rather than prosecute, according to media reports, by not prosecuting, by being permissive, by forgetting what her role is in the justice system. She undermines the law and encourages a mob rule. Worse, Chicago has become all but lawless, and lawlessness invites vigilantism, which is also illegal and outside the law, and that makes everything worse. Only the, only the insane would want to see such chaos. Or perhaps revolutionaries. What was she thinking when she dropped the grand jury counts against Jesse Smollett? Did she think she could skate away and become Senator Kim Fox and hang out with Kamala Harris and learn to giggle like she does? When the Jesse Smollett story broke, and Kamala Harris stopped cackling for a bit and told America that Jussie was a victim of a modern-day lynching. They were joined, I'm not going to say president, they were joined by usurper Joe Biden and others who used it to weaponize the black vote and to cast Republicans as hateful. So, pardon me, but I'm not going to shut up about it. They owe all Americans, including the real victims of real hate crimes, an apology for forging this fantasy. Indeed, they do. There were other great, big, political, and media clowns in the Jussie Smollett clown show. Yeah, let's take a look at some of these uh, tweets from back January 29th, 2019. Kamala Harris saying, <clears throat> Jesse Smollett is one of the kindest, most gentle human beings I know. I'm praying for his quick recovery. This was an attempt at modern-day lynching. No one should have to fear for their life because of their sexuality or color of the skin. We must confront this hate. Now, interesting timing, Kamala Harris is working on an anti-lynching bill she's trying to get through the Senate. 
long about the same time, Jesse uh, claimed that a couple of white guys attacked him 18 below 2 a.m. in Chicago because they recognized him from a show that hardly any white people have ever seen. And they just happened to have a news and bleach on hand in case they would run into a gay black star of a TV show nobody knew about in the white community in the middle of the night in Chicago in the wintertime. Just in case. Bernie Sanders tweeted, The racist and homophobic attack on Jussie Smollett is a horrific instance of the surging hostility toward minorities around the country. We must come together to eradicate all forms of bigotry and violence. Dementia Joe Biden tweeted, What happened today to Jussie Smollett? must never be tolerated in this country. We must stand up and demand that we no longer give this hate safe harbor, that homophobia and racism have no place in our streets or in our hearts. We're with you, Jesse. I guess they had room in there to mention corn pop. AOC, Alexandria Occasional Cortex, tweeted, There's no such thing as racially charged. This attack was not possibly homophobic. It was a racist and homophobic attack. If you don't like what is happening to our country, then work to change it. It is no one's job to water down or sugarcoat the rise of hate crimes. Oh. Oh, a hate crime. Oh. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. No, I did not call her Beetlejuice. Frankly, I think that's disrespectful. She can't help the way she looks. Uh, Lori Lightfoot tweeted out, My thoughts and prayers are with hashtag Jussie Smollett. Everyone deserves to live safely as their true authentic self in this city. As mayor, I will make sure that regardless of the victim's stature, hate crime incidents and complaints are fully investigated. Yeah, I don't think she wanted full investigation on this one, do you? No, because uh, full investigation led to 16 charges on Jussie from the grand jury. And Mayor uh, Beetlejuice, now you got me saying it, doggone it. Mayor uh, Lightfoot's uh, BFF, State Attorney uh, Kim Fox. Dropped all the charges and it took a courageous retired judge to get a special counsel. Anyway, Cory Booker, Democrat senator of New Jersey, he of the Spartacus moment, tweeted out, the vicious attack on actor Jussie Smollett was an attempt at modern-day lynching. I'm glad he's safe. To those in Congress who don't feel the urgency to pass Our anti-lynching bill, designating lynching as a federal hate crime, I urge you to pay attention. So I wouldn't doubt if this thing was, uh, you know, there's some kind of uh, collusion between Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Jussie to get the bill passed. That wouldn't surprise me. Joanne Reed over there on MSNBC, the racist on MSNBC says, nooses never really disappeared as messages of a very specific kind of terror. What? What kind of specific kind of terror, Joy Ann Reed? The Chicago kind of terror? 
the Chicagoland, Windy City. This is MAGA country, let's catch the L kind of terror. Joy Ann, you knucklehead. She says, but every time they're used, my God, it's chilling. Whoa, 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 whoa. The noose is your God? That's weird. Let me back it up and give uh, context. Joanne Reed, MSNBC host, said nooses have never really disappeared as messages of a very specific kind of terror, but every time they're used, my God, it's chilling. I guess the nooses are God. I don't know. She says, praying for Jesse's full recovery and for us all. Rashida Tlaib, the great uh, Hamas sympathizer. The jihad terror enthusiast, Rashida Tlaib, says, when one of the most famous black and gay men in America is not safe, he message is clearer than it has ever been. I guess it's a typo. The dangerous lies spewing from the right wing is killing and hurting our people. That should be R. Lies R. She says, thinking of you, Jussie Smollett, and my LGBTQ neighbors. All right, Rashida. Um, now, now, you're a big uh, proponent of uh, Hamas, Hezbollah. Tell us how uh, black gay men do in areas where Hamas and Hezbollah are in control. Yeah, uh, tell us how that works out in Libya, for that matter. And one more, Eric Swalwell. How long was he having that affair with a Chinese spy, Fang Fang? He says what happened to Jesse Smollett is vile and tragic. Thankfully, he will recover, but hate crimes like this are happening more frequently. Egged on by careless, hate-filled rhetoric, we start reducing these crimes by rejecting the speech. Neither can ever be accepted as normal. We start reducing these crimes by rejecting the speech. Oh, hate-filled rhetoric. Well, you're the guy with the hate-filled rhetoric. You've been lying about people for how many years? You're the guy with the hate-filled rhetoric. So anyway, take a look at John Cass's column here, great Chicago journalist, and right in the middle of it, he has all these political types, none of whom could possibly believe this happened if they looked at the facts of the case. They couldn't possibly believe this happened. Maybe they were relying on Kim Fox to drop the charges on Jesse so everybody would be able to say, well, you know, must have happened because uh, he wasn't uh, never found guilty of uh, making it up. So uh, anyway, uh, back to John Cass in his column. He says, included in the pantheon of prominent clowns is ABC TV's Good Morning America's Robin Roberts, highly paid media personality who poses as a reporter. 
She uncritically carried Jussie Smollett's hateful water in a treacly interview, let him go on and on without challenging him once, and afterwards she whispered, Beautiful, Jussie. Beautiful. Now, later on, when it became obvious Jussie made it up, she said, yeah, I had some real serious uh, you know, alarm bells going off, some real uh, serious questions there. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. It, it didn't matter to you whether it was true or not. CNN's Van Jones idiotically compared the actor Jussie Smollett to baseball great Jackie Robinson. the first black man to play Major League Baseball. Van Jones, CNN, idiotically compared Jussie Smollett to Jackie Robinson when the story broke, saying Jussie was an icon, rudely treated by the deplorables, insisting in a breathless voice that Jussie Smollett was Jackie Robinson against homophobia. So, that ABC and CNN still call themselves news networks is testimony to the arrogance of their news executives and the stupidity of their audiences. There are others who deserve recognition too. Chief among them is Chicago State Attorney Kim Fox's patron, Tony Preckwinkle. Now, Tony is president of the Cook County Board of Commissioners and chair of the Cook County Democrat Party. So we can't forget Tony, okay? Tony Preckwinkle is one of those people who just love it if, we all, if we'd all shut up and never mention Jesse Smollett's name again. Kim Fox is her former chief of staff. Tony reached down from her mountain of power and made Kim Fox state's attorney. Now, after Kim Fox dropped the charges and the nasty stuff hit the fan, there were calls for a special prosecutor to investigate Kim Fox and the Jussie Smollett case. Retired Judge Sheila O'Brien could see that something was terribly wrong. She stood up in Judge Michael Tuman's court and demanded a special prosecutor, and Judge Tuman granted her a petition. Now, Judge Tuman knew Kim Fox was favored by Tony Preckwinkle head of the Chicago Board of County Commissioners. But, but, Judge Tuman cared more about the law and the public's confidence in the judicial system than Boss Tony's feelings. Boss Tony was angry and began a campaign of intimidation to convince Democrat Party warlords under her power to bounce Judge Tuman from their slate and from the court. She wanted him gone. Anything progressive in that, Tony? John Cass says, happily, my principal colleagues on the editorial board of the paper, Chicago Tribune, where I worked for years, fought back on Judge Tuman's behalf, and Preckwinkle failed in her bid for revenge. Now she seethes. Judge Tuman selected Dan Webb as special prosecutor. He's an able litigator, one of the best trial attorneys in the country, but I'm, I'm not a big Dan Webb fan. Yes, he prosecuted Jesse Smollett, got the conviction, fine, okay. 
Give the man a cigar or a soda, whatever. But to me, he represents the Republican half of the bipartisan Illinois combine that has ruled this city and state and with the Democrats pushed it into financial quicksand. The party of Jim Thompson, Jim Edgar, and Big Bill Cellini, and all the combine and all the combine boys and girls. Dan Webb is their guy, their ultimate inside man. I see him in the role of cleaner, like a character played by Harvey Keitel in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Smollett goes down, but Kim Fox cleansed, gets to walk. Preckwinkle issues sighs of relief. Now, if we just listen to those telling us not to talk about Jussie Smollett, maybe they can get through this. I don't want to be the skunk at Kim Fox's party, but I won't help push Jussie Smollett into the Chicago memory hole. On Thursday evening, after the jury convicted Jussie Smollett, Dan Webb declined to talk about Kim Fox, and that's too bad. She hasn't been charged with any crime, and though I'm not a lawyer, I don't think she should be allowed to walk away. I believe Kim Fox should be disbarred and recalled for misconduct over what she did in the Jussie Smollett case, lying about recusing herself, whispering with Tina Chen, Michelle Obama's former chief of staff, her thumbs on the scales of justice to do what exactly? Satisfy her political ambitions? There won't be a recall. Tony won't allow such a measure to pass the county board. And still after all this, she was endorsed for re-election by Preckwinkle and all the top Democrats, including Governor J.B. Pritzker, him of the enormous girth, and Senator Dick, the unctuous one, Durbin, and Chicago Mayor Lori Beetlejuice Lightfoot. and Oh, I, I slipped again, sorry. And Kim Fox had that George Soros campaign cash the local media aren't supposed to talk about. Not in Chi-Town, not in the Windy City. No, no. When they speak of justice now, do their words come become like ashes in their mouths? I know, I know, I know, I know. We've been told to forget about it. Hey, 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 As the late, great Norm MacDonald will say, hey, 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 forget about it. By experts who don't want to talk about it or hear Jesse's name mentioned ever again. But I can't forget. I can't forget. Why? Beyond the parochial politics of this and the infection of the people's sense of justice, Jesse Smollett illustrates something else. The case illustrates much of what is wrong about our cultural high priests and national politics and corporate legacy media. They engage in the catechism of sanctification of victimhood for the sake of power. Brendan O'Neill writes about this brilliantly over at Spiked Online in his article, Jussie Smollett and the Coveting of Victimhood. O'Neill says, the speed with which claims of racial victimization are transformed and to stop the press news about America and the West more broadly being horrible racist hellholes helps to explain why these hoaxes keep happening. O'Neill says there's a symbiotic relationship between the woke elite's insatiable yearning for proof of America's rottenness 
and the fact that some people falsely claim to have been victimized and attacked. The credulous, breathless reporting of every allegation of hate or hate crime. Pardon me. Take two. The credulous, breathless reporting of every allegation of hate crime as irrefutable evidence. The white supremacy is still rampant. Acts as an invitation to the hate crime hoaxers, to the identitarian chancers. The knowledge that they will be instantly believed, instantly accorded the pity of the clerisy. Now, I had to look up that word, clerisy. I had to figure out, okay, wait, 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 what, 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 what does that mean? Because every once in a while, you know, they, they, they get one past me. So clerisy, a distinct class of learned or literary people. All right? That's what it means. So, pardon me. There's a symbiotic relationship between the woke elite's insatiable yearning for proof of America's rottenness and the fact that some people falsely claim to have been victimized and attacked. The credulous, breathless reporting of every allegation of hate crime as irrefutable evidence of white supremacy is still rampant, acts as an invitation to the hate crime hoaxers, to the identitarian chancers, the knowledge that they will be instantly believed, instantly accorded the pity of the, let's use the word elite there, the pity of the elite, instantly inaugurated into that holy sect that has directly experienced the violence of supremacist ideologies, of the lingering colonialist brutalism of Western society is unquestionably an enticement to fabrication. It is contemporary society's sanctification of victimhood, especially the victimhood of racial suffering that tempts some to forge horrors and hardships. In other words, they make it up. Thank you, Mr. O'Neill. Forging fake hate crimes isn't something to forget or let go, and Jesse Smollett isn't the only fake hate crime hoaxer who's been exposed. There are real hate crimes and real rapes, and those who are proven by a jury to have made false allegations about racial hate crimes and other assaults soil the true suffering of real victims. They make everything cheap, even pain. Hoaxers can't be forgiven just because they're in some protected racial or gender class. Jussie Smollett requires some jail time, some real jail time, if only to remind others that fantastic manipulation is dangerous to society, that innocent people could have been badly hurt or worse if racial conflict broke out as a result and, there, and that there is a cost. But what of Chicago State Attorney Kim Fox? One of the head of the Cook County Commissioners, Tony Preckwinkle, the court jester, Chief Cook County Judge Tim Evans, and, and all the rest of them. The Chicago politicians, they don't believe in fairy tales. Judge O'Brien said they should be ashamed of themselves. Fox ought to be ashamed of herself. The city burns. People can't go out at night because of the tsunami of violent crime on the street. And she gives Jesse Smollett a pass. 
and she and Preckwinkle went after Judge Tooman saying he shouldn't be supportive for retention? Kim Fox, Tony Preckwinkle, the chief judge, they should all be ashamed. You could quote me on that. There are many who'd rather we all move on and not speak of Jesse Smollett again. But former judge Sheila O'Brien is not one of them. And I don't think you're one of them either. Because there is a true cost in forgetting from the sanctification of victimhood to the clumsy political thumbs on the scales of justice and the weaponizing of racial politics for the sake of power at the polls. And you know who pays the cost. You pay. They'll walk. They always walk. This is the Chicago way. Just as surely as Chicagoans talk about the bulls, the bears. This is the Chicago way. Whether the street is dominated by pink Irish guys in pinstripe suits or black women with progressive cred and leftist social justice warriors protecting their flanks, they walk. But you won't walk. You pay, as do all the rest of us. Lest we forget. You know, I got to tell you, in a sane world, a guy like John Cass, who wrote that op-ed entitled Jussie Smollett, Lest We Forget. In a sane world, a guy like John Cass would get a Pulitzer for this. But it's not a sane world. It's not. It's just not. No, it's the uh, the kind of world where, uh, as the late, great George Carlin said, there's a big club, but you're not in it. And that's what's up. And that's what's up. And that's why they thought they could jam Obamacare down our throats, right? the so-called Affordable Care Act, right? You remember? 2009, Nancy Pelosi saying, well, we're just going to have to pass it so you can find out what's in it. Yeah, we found out all right. We found out all right. So again, did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to get a hold of my friend, Art Wilborn. He's got a great website called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. You go to MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. First thing you see is the big, bold letters, affordable plans. Wait, affordable? Who knew that was still possible in the year 2021? Next thing you see, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. Wait a minute, no co-pays? Yeah, no co-pays. So you just click on the little button that says schedule call now. And Art Wilborn at myfamilyhealthplan.com will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Just book a free consultation. Wow, 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 wow. 
By the way, with Art Wilborn's website, myfamilyhealthplan.com, he makes sure that you don't have to cover things that would uh, offend your deeply held religious beliefs. No abortion, none of that kind of garbage. So save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, and no copays. Just book your free consultation at myfamilyhealthplan.com. Save money at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be glad you did. You'll be so glad you did. All right, now, that having been said, that having been said, I, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, so Biden is out there now saying there's no way. Saying there's no way we could have avoided the 13 service members who were killed in Afghanistan. No way. He's actually saying this. Have you heard about this? Because it's, uh, it's outrageous. Yeah, let me scroll back and get it. Because it would have been easy to avoid it. You avoid it by not closing the Bagram Air Base. You keep the Bagram Air Base open to evacuate people, right? And um, instead of evacuating people from a, a major airport, a city of over a million people where you can't protect yourself and your, your people. But this idiot, this idiot, and you know, who knows if he actually knows what he's saying. But Jill is right there minding him. All right, here's Joe, Dementia Joe. Certain things that are just, like, for example, Afghanistan. Well, I've been against that war in Afghanistan for the, from the very beginning. We're spending $300 million a week in Afghanistan over 20 years. Now, how do you, you know, everybody says you could have gotten out without any, anybody being hurt. No one's come up with a way to ever indicate to me how that happens. He lies for a living. He lies for a living. Biden's troop withdrawal from Afghanistan was a disaster. Don't take it from me. Take it from Obama-Biden administration officials. Let's start with a former Homeland Security official, Jay Johnson, and then you'll hear former Obama CIA director, uh, Leon Panetta, and then Ryan Crocker, former Afghan ambassador Afghan. Then you'll hear uh, David Axelrod, former top advisor to Obama. Then John Brennan, Obama CIA director. They all say it was a disaster. These are Obama's guys saying Biden's a disaster in the way he got out of Afghanistan. All right, here's Jay Johnson. This Afghan government was going to collapse rapidly 
because of the way in which we, we got out. I think of John Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs. It unfolded quickly and uh, uh, the president thought that everything would be fine and uh, that was not the case. It has created a global crisis, quite frankly. You cannot defend the execution here. This has been a disaster. Well, they clearly were caught off guard by the events of the last 72 hours. How his decision was made to withdraw, but then its execution, uh, which has been so far catastrophic. All right, that was uh, Ryan Crocker, Obama Afghanistan ambassador. Before that, you hear John Brennan, David Axelrod. You know, these are all Obama guys saying that that Biden completely screwed it up. Our national security is threatened. Yes, that was uh, John Panetta, who's CIA director under Obama. Here's David Petraeus, Obama's CIA director. Is uh, a Dunkirk moment or, or perhaps a Saigon moment. This tragedy was completely preventable. Nobody. Won- that was uh, James Cunningham, Obama Afghanistan ambassador. Here's Mike Miller, Obama Joint Chiefs Chairman. Once the Saigon image, and obviously we ended up with another Saigon image. I'm sorry, Mike Mullen, Admiral Mike Mullen. Again, Ryan Crocker, Obama Afghanistan Ambassador. Kind of like the Dunkirk evacuation. We do have to regard the recent turn of events as creating a real risk uh, of of another terrorist organization, whether it's ISIS-K, Al-Qaeda, trying to reestablish a foothold in Afghanistan. Uh, Again, that was Jay Johnson. Obama's director of Homeland Security. Ryan Crocker, Obama Afghanistan ambassador. A really rough time. It didn't need to be this way. The fact that there was little to no real planning done. I'm left with some grave question in my mind about his ability, speaking about the president, to lead our nation as commander in chief, to have read this so wrong, or even worse, to have understood what was likely to happen and not care. Admit the mistakes that were made. So they were behind the curve from the beginning of the announcement. The situation is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it is tragic. Uh, it's disastrous. And the execution in particular does not speak to competency. They will provide a safe haven for al-Qaeda. Uh, it's a failure. And he needs to own that failure. He's the commander-in-chief. It has emboldened uh, violent uh, Islamic radicals. So they... I might be doing a little bit of high-fiving. All right, so that was like ambassadors to Afghanistan under Obama, CIA directors under Obama, Homeland Security directors under Obama, saying Biden totally screwed it up. But we're supposed to believe that no one told Biden there was any different way to do it. Remember? 21 seconds. This is what he said earlier today. Certain things that are just like, for example, Afghanistan. Well, I've been against that war in Afghanistan for the, from the very beginning. We're spending $300 million a week in Afghanistan over 20 years. Now, how do you know? Everybody says you could have gotten out without any, anybody being hurt. No one's come up with a way to ever indicate to me how that happens. He's been lying all his life. Remember, this is a guy who uh, plagiarized in law school. He plagiarized when he was run for president the first time in 1987. He had to drop out. He's been lying all his life. And whoever his puppet masters are, they hire people to lie. They hire people to lie. It's outrageous. 
is outrageous. Oh, 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 and now Hillary thinks she can get back in. The great Jeff Carlson over the EpicTimes.com says there's a seemingly negative correlation between Kamala Harris's popularity and this flurry of Hillary Clinton interviews all of a sudden. Here's Hillary. And sadly, the Republican Party has gone along with him. And for the life of me, people who I knew that I served with, who fall in line on the outrageous accusations they make, whether it's against Dr. Tony Fauci or pretending that what happened on January 6th wasn't an insurrection. Honestly, they have hung their spines up on the wall as they walk into their offices. They have no conscience. They have no spine. And we are seeing the results of a party that has been taken over by a demagogue. <laughs> Hillary Clinton saying somebody else has no conscience. <laughs> hey, I'm doing the show from Little Rock, Arkansas. And books have been written about the fact that Hillary Clinton has no conscience. One that I would recommend to you. One that I would recommend to you was written by Bill Clinton's former longtime girlfriend. No, 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 not Jennifer Flowers. A woman who was uh, Bill Clinton's girlfriend for a lot longer than Jennifer Flowers was. Dolly Kyle. Her book came out in 2016 called Hillary, the Other Woman, a Political Memoir. And why was it called Hillary, the Other Woman, a Political Memoir? Well, obviously, of course, Hillary in private is completely different than the public persona she tries to foist upon all of us. But the other reason it was called Hillary the Other Woman was because when Bill introduced Hillary to Dolly the night of the primaries, 1974 in Arkansas, Dolly was Bill's steady girlfriend and Hillary was the other woman. So yeah. Yeah, so there's that. Now, there's a lot of concern out there that the FBI is up to their old tricks. They never really stopped their old tricks. Has the FBI set up a Republican congressman? Well, let's take uh, let's take a look at the evidence here, and this is from uh, Josh Gerstein over at Politico. Now, Politico is certainly no right wing website, and Josh Ger Gerstein certainly is not a conservative journalist. Article entitled "Fortenberry Indictment." raises questions about the FBI's tactics. Let's take a look. He just dropped it yesterday. The Justice Department's prosecution of a Republican lawmaker for allegedly lying to the FBI is raising thorny issues about the use of surreptitious tactics during investigations into members of Congress. The false statement indictment brought against Representative Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska Two months ago, 
is also resurfacing many of the same questions that triggered a firestorm of controversy around the prosecution of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Critics say the concerns about the approval process and threshold to deploy arguably deceptive investigative tactics are even more acute in Congressman Fortenberry's case because of the role the, cons- the Constitution lays out for lawmakers as part of a separate branch of government. Stan Brand, Washington attorney, former general counsel of the House of Representatives, says this goes back to the age-old question, what is the separation of powers implication of having the FBI and the Justice Department test members for probity? I just think that's wrong. I think it's a mistake, and I think it's a problem. So the trouble for Fortenberry dates back to a fundraiser in Glendale, California. February 2016. That brought in more than $30,000 for his re-election campaign. That money, federal investigators later concluded, originated with a guy named Gilbert Chaguri, a billionaire businessman with French, Lebanese, and Nigerian roots, who was legally forbidden from donating to U.S. political campaigns. Chigori and the straw donors have all said they do not believe Fortenberry was even aware at the time that the donors were so-called conduits or that the money came from Chigori, a prominent philanthropist for various causes, including the plights of Christians in Lebanon, according to Fortenberry's defense. The FBI appears to have stumbled on the donations as part of a broader inquiry into Chikori's efforts to wield influence in the U.S. Within months of the fundraiser, the FBI gained the cooperation of its host, who agreed to place a recorded call to Congressman Fortenberry of Nebraska in June 2018 as he faced another re-election bid, according to court papers. According to the indictment, during that call, the informant told Congressman Fortenberry on multiple occasions that the $30,000 in donations raised to the 2016 event was a result of cash delivered by one of Chiguri's top advisors in the U.S., Tufik Baklini. The informant also told Congressman Fortenberry the funds probably did come from Gilbert Chiguri because he was so grateful for your support for the cause. This is what the indictment alleges, apparently referring to efforts to advocate for Christians in the Middle East. Nine months later... FBI and IRS agents show up at Fortenberry's home in Lincoln, Nebraska to question him about the money. With the FBI again secretly recording the conversation, the lawmaker said he was completely unaware of any straw donations or any money from foreign nationals that flowed to his campaign according to the indictment. After the initial interview, Fortenberry lined up a prominent attorney to advise him former U.S. Representative Trey Gowdy of South Carolina. With Gowdy at his side, Congressman Fortenberry met in Washington with the FBI and federal prosecutors. There he repeated the same denials, even when asked directly about the June 2018 call, according to the indictment. He also added some new flourishes, prosecutors contend, saying he ended the call with the informant because of some concerning comment. Fortenberry also insisted he would have been horrified if told about the scheme, according to the indictment. 
Now, the Fornberry saga has striking similarities to the investigation and prosecution of one Michael Flynn. When the FBI went to interview Flynn at his White House office, an agent already had intercepts of his conversations with then-Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. Flynn's lawyers would eventually agree that his allegedly false denials about the conversation could not have affected any investigation because the FBI already knew what there transpired. Flynn's lawyers also said the FBI essentially tricked him into thinking the interview was a routine matter and intentionally departed from protocol that would have called for informing the White House Counsel's office about the interview. Attorney General William Barr appointed U.S. Attorney from Missouri, Jeff Jensen, to look into the matter and eventually moved to drop the prosecution of Michael Flynn despite the fact he'd already pleaded guilty to the charge as part of a plea bargain, Special Counsel Robert Mueller. William Barr said the investigation of Michael Flynn lacked a legitimate basis and that it was far from clear that his statements were material to the Justice Department investigation. The decision was sharply criticized by Democrats and many former prosecutors who said A.G. Barr was departing from longstanding practices in false statement cases and effectively raising the bar for such cases in the future. Some lawyers say the FBI's actions against Fordenberry are even more extreme because the only conversation he's accused of lying about is one that the FBI not only monitored but ginned up. But for the information allegedly related to the lawmaker in that call, there wouldn't be any prosecution. Ellen Podgore. Law professor Stetson University in Florida says if the government manufactured a crime, it could backfire if the case goes to trial. I have to wonder where juries would stand on something like this today. California-based defense lawyer who's taken over Congressman Fortenberry's case, John Luttrell, has filed a flurry of motions complaining about the government's tactics. Los Angeles-based U.S. District Court Judge Stanley Bloomfield, Bloomfield Jr., an appointee of President Trump, has scheduled a hearing today on several of the motions. Spokesperson for Congress in Fortenberry, Chad Colton, said, the more the public hears about this case, the more they are learning about the deceitful and deceptive conduct the prosecutor and the FBI have used and continue to use at every single stage of this investigation. In a declaration filed with Blumenfeld last week, Trey Gowdy complained that he was misled by the lead prosecutor on the case, Mac Jenkins. Trey Gowdy, who stepped off the case since he could be called as a witness, said, I specifically asked Mr. Jenkins whether Mr. Fortenberry was considered a subject, target, or witness in the investigation. While Congressman Fortenberry was keenly interested in sharing information with federal authorities, it was also critical for me to know how those authorities viewed him. Mr. Jenkins said Mr. Fortenberry was a subject trending toward a witness in the investigation. Had Mr. Jenkins told me Congressman Fortenberry was a target, or had Mr. Jenkins told me agents suspected Mr. Fortenberry had previously made a false statement to the FBI, there would not have been a subsequent interview. Gowdy also contends that during a break in the July 2019 interview, he asked Jenkins if this was a BS-1001 case, referring to the false statement section of the U.S. Code eventually used to charge Fortenberry. 
Gowdy, a former federal prosecutor in South Carolina, said Jenkins assured him it was not. In addition to the prosecutor's alleged deception of Trey Gowdy, Fortenberry's defense contends their client was misled by the FBI agent who visited his home in Lincoln, Nebraska in March 2019. Fortenberry says the agent told him Here's from the, the Omaha field office. It was actually based in California and that the visit related to a national security investigation. It's unclear whether any investigation involving a foreign citizen's efforts to buy influence in the U.S. could be considered as a national security matter. Now, the motions challenging the face, this case face an uphill battle, in part because deception is commonplace in police work. Supreme Court has upheld a wide range of such tactics, but critics say their use against members of Congress raises the possibility of politically inspired mischief. Exactly. Indeed, the Justice Department's internal policy seemed to acknowledge that possibility by requiring the local federal prosecutors consult with DOJ headquarters about investigations involving federal lawmakers. But what happens after that initial consultation is less clear. Some of the rules appear to require higher-level approval at DOJ for actions such as wiretaps of a member of Congress, but prosecutors have argued in court filings those rules don't apply to the kind of sting call the FBI arranged to Fortenberry or the surreptitious recording of the FBI's visit to his home. Prosecutors wrote in a court filing last month the defense's intimation that there, was, there were nefarious and underhanded tactics in obtaining internal approvals during the investigation of both disingenuous and false. Records prosecution has disclosed to Congressman Fortenberry's lawyers indicate some approvals were sought within the FBI for certain steps, including for use of a ruse against the lawmaker who was first elected to the House in 2004. Prosecutors insist that despite the internal discussion, no ruse was used. Well... There's plenty more, but it looks like a setup. I don't see how you get around this being a setup. What I'm saying, Holmes? I mean, this is a setup. And uh, it's outrageous because... As the great Julie Kelly says, who is scheduled to be on our show at 12.05 Eastern on Wednesday, after responding to the tweet from Josh Gerstein, the reporter on Politico, who said, new FBI's surreptitious tactics and foreign donations sting against Representative Jeff Fortenberry in Nebraska, Echo Flynn case, also what happened to Attorney General Garland's promise to reset investigations that impact lawmakers. Julie Kelly says the FBI is irretrievably corrupt and must be abolished. And she quotes from the article, some lawyers say the FBI's actions against Fortenberry are even more extreme because the only conversation he's accused of lying about is one that the FBI not only monitored, but ginned up. She says another sting by Chris Ray, And yet another quote, the breadth of Shiguri's political donations has fueled speculation that the FBI arranged secretly recorded calls 
or use similar sting tactics against other lawmakers. And she says, but remember, everybody, the FBI, this FBI, of course, had nothing to do with January 6th. Right, 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 right. Man. Got another comment here. Fortenberry is on the powerful appropriations committee, but more important is the ranking member on the committee overseeing the FDA and Pfizer. This is no accident. Oh, I believe that. I believe that. A lot going on today. A lot to talk about today. I want to tell you a short real-life story about something happened to my wife when she was still my fiance. We got married in the spring of 2016. But um, New Year's Eve 2015, I couldn't find her. I couldn't get a hold of her. She wouldn't answer her phone. And I didn't know her adult children well enough at the time to have their phone numbers, but one that finally reached me on Facebook and said, hey, Mama woke up this morning and, and, and could hardly breathe, and Jason's girlfriend had to drive her to the ER at Baptist 80 miles an hour, and they put her into a, a medically induced coma. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Medically induced, how much, what? Because to me, I mean, I, you know, I only knew one kind of coma, the kind you're in when you're about to kick it, you know? So it was explained to me that medically induced coma means they just put you under to try to stabilize you. Oh. She was in the hospital for nine days. She was in that medically induced coma for two and a half of them. So uh, they told her she had uh, COPD which is a very frightening uh, condition in which you had just a lot of times have a real hard time catching your breath, you know? Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Your, your, your airflow is blocked. You have breathing-related problems. One form of COPD is emphysema. Another form is chronic bronchitis anyway. I've been telling her about the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center where you can get your atlas adjusted in it and it helps get rid of the obstruction, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Helps get rid of the obstruction. Because, you know, the way it works, your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. Really easy for that atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body the way God designed it to do. So it can affect anything your reproductive system, your digestive system, your circulatory system, 
and yes, your respiratory system. So I took her to the Arkansas Cervical Center, and they did the tests on her, did the x-rays, showed us a picture of her head and her neck, and sure enough, her atlas out of alignment. We got her atlas aligned, <clears throat> got it adjusted, and walking out to the car, she said to me the oddest thing. She said, Doc, this is so strange, but for years, the big toe in my left foot has felt numb and tingly, and now it feels normal. I'm like, good. That afternoon, I used to do the uh, local afternoon radio talk show, Little Rock. That afternoon, she texted me. She's like, hey, guess what? I don't have my regular daily backache. I'm like, good. And then a few days later, um, she said, you know, I haven't had a headache since I got my atlas adjusted. I said, well, how often are you used to having headaches? She's like, every day. But a few weeks later, she had to do a follow-up with uh, some kind of respiratory specialist, a doctor who specializes in respiratory stuff. And he ran her through a battery of tests, and he was confused. He's like, you don't have COPD. Where'd you get the idea you had COPD? Well, that's what they told me in the hospital. No, you don't have any. You're, you're fine. Your lungs are fine. Everything's fine. Uh, do yourself a favor. If you're having breathing issues, uh, allergies, vertigo, migraines, back pain, neck pain, if you're in Arkansas, you can call the Arkansas Upper Circle Center at 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, you go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on find a doctor and, and find somebody that's close to where you are. And uh, you'll be glad you did. Turnmypoweron.com. All right. Having said that, Chris Wallace decided to leave Fox News Sunday and go to something called CNN Plus. Now, that's going to be like an online platform for CNN. Kind of like Fox News has Fox Nation. I guess CNN is going to have CNN Plus online. And somebody, I wish I could remember who said on Twitter, said, how are they going to possibly be able to get anybody to watch CNN Plus online when nobody watches CNN Minus already? Oh! So... Chris Wallace's uh, parting shot, his parting message yesterday on his last day on Fox News Sunday went something like this. But after 18 years, I have decided to leave Fox. I want to try something new to go beyond politics to all the things I'm interested in. I'm ready for a new adventure, and I hope you'll check it out. And so, for the last time, dear friends, that's it for today. Have a great week. And I hope you'll keep watching Fox News Sunday. All right, now, now, this is very helpful. In case you missed it the first time around, September 30th, 2020, 
Jordan Boyd of the Federalist. She uh, <laughs> she has an article here of the eleven dumbest, most slanted questions asked by Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace received negative marks for his consistent uh, interruptions of President Donald Trump and for his poor time management. But the worst thing about his moderation of the first presidential debate were the questions he asked. Here are 11 dumbest, most slanted questions asked by Chris Wallace. It's a long article. I'm not going to read the whole article. I think I'll just read the questions. And you can check it out if you want. Number one, what is radical about racial sensitivity training? Number two, will you condemn white supremacists, which, of course, he'd already done over and over again. Number three, why are you holding big rallies? Number four, do you believe there is an unequal system of justice for blacks? Number five, do you believe in climate change? Number six, I'm having a little trouble myself. Wait, what? That doesn't sound like a question. I'll have to read the explanation for that one. When the question came around to Biden, who had forgotten what the topic was, saying, I can't remember which all of his rantings, Wallace laughed, said, I'm having a little trouble myself, and they had a moment of shared hatred of Donald Trump. Wallace then helped Biden along repeatedly, prodding him to talk about the economy and the environment. Minutes earlier, Biden had denied that he supported the Green New Deal, but then he said the Green New Deal will pay for itself as we move forward. Wallace asked him if he did, in fact, support the Green New Deal. He once again returned to claiming he didn't. Quote, no, I don't support the Green New Deal, unquote. His website, however, supports the radical Green New Deal policy co-sponsored by his running mate, Kamala Harris, and lists it as a crucial framework for addressing climate change on his own campaign website. All right. So the list of the 11 dumbest, most slanted questions asked by Chris Wallace in that first presidential debate last fall. Number seven, will you wait to declare an election victory? Oh, you know what that's about. Chris Wallace is part of the steal, I'm sure. I'm sure he was. And that's, that's my opinion. You're entitled to it. Number eight, how will you reassure voters the next president is legitimate? Number nine, are you counting on Supreme Court to settle voting disputes? Number 10, will you tell us how much you paid in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017? Number 11, we'll come back to Roe v. Wade. Wait, what? Despite promises to circle back around to discuss the topic of abortion that came up during the segment about Trump's Supreme Court nomination for Amy Coney Barrett, Wallace never brought it up again, even when he decided to ask science questions. Quote, Well, all right, all right, let's talk. We've got a lot to unpack here, gentlemen. We've got a lot of time on health care, and then we'll come back to Roe v. Wade. The unpacking, though, did not require any extra effort on Wallace's part when he failed to push Biden after he refused to comment on court packing. In the end, it was Trump who continued to press Biden while Wallace moved on. Yes, yes. So, um, Joe Biden goes to the network 
pardon me, not Joe Biden, Chris Wallace, Freudian slip. Chris Wallace goes to the network where um, Fredo, Fredo Cuomo just got fired. Or Fredo Cuomo's former producer has been arrested for alleged sexual molestation of minor minor girls. Chris Wallace is like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll go over there. Wow, 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 wow. I mean, what is that all about? You know? Why does that seem like a good idea? You know? I mean, anyway, so as Julie Kelly said, the FBI clearly are in business to be the palace guard of the Democrat regime. There's too much evidence supporting that and, and no evidence to the contrary. The FBI, what about the IRS? Christopher Jacobs over the Federalist. Christopher Jacobs founder and CEO of Juniper Research Group and author of the book, The Case Against Single Payer. He's got a new article out over the Federalist entitled, Why Did the IRS Audit Donald Trump But Not Joe Biden? Well, now, now we're getting somewhere. He says, is Lois Lerner in charge of determining which politicians to audit at the IRS that's a relevant question from a recent Washington Post article looking at Joe Biden's taxes. The Post received confirmation that the IRS declined to audit Biden's returns from the years before he became president, but separate reporting confirmed the IRS did audit Donald Trump's returns from the years before he became president. This raises an obvious question, why the disparity? This important question comes as Democrats want to give the IRS $80 billion in new funding over a decade, along with new enforcement authority, including to obtain additional information about ordinary Americans' bank accounts. It also applies to a government agency that, thanks to Lois Lerner, harassed conservative nonprofits and faces unanswered questions about the mysterious leak of tax records to the leftist website ProPublica. Given these developments, it's worth asking whether the audit disparity represents another instance of federal bureaucrats politicizing the tax, tax code and whether such an agency deserves even more funding and power. The Washington Post fact, pardon me, the Washington Post column from its fact checker so-called fact-checker Glenn Kessler, came after he said a reader, full disclosure, me, asked him to look into whether Biden paid his proverbial fair share. I want to give Glenn Kessler credit publicly for examining the matter in detail. 
Unlike reporters at Politico and other outlets like the Associated Press and New York Times, whose reporters, when I raised the issue of Biden underpaying his taxes, gave me a polite brush off. That said, Glenn Kessler, Washington Post dodged the definitive judgment on either of the two separate issues regarding Biden's taxes. The first is the fact that from 2017 through 2019, Biden exploited a loophole he now wants to close because his own Treasury Department says it allows business owners, particularly those with high incomes, to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. As I had previously explained, Biden and his wife Jill funneled their book and speech income through two S-corporations because they characterized most of that revenue as corporate profits rather than wages. They avoided payroll taxes, which fund Medicare and Obamacare, more than the $1.3 million worth of income. Kessler said, whether Biden is being hypocritical or not, Kessler said whether Biden is being hypocritical or not is in the eye of the beholder. To which Biden himself might respond, come on, man. If you spent the past four years using a loophole that your own Treasury Secretary declined to employ for her speech income, you have absolutely no right to close it for others. And if you try, you have every right and expectation to get called on it. But the second question involves whether Biden, having used a legal albeit politically hypocritical loophole, did so in an illegal manner. That is, did he deliberately underpay his salary as opposed to end-of-year profits for the corporation in a way that violated IRS guidelines on reasonable compensation? On this, the experts, Washington Post, Glenn Kessler, fact checker, interviewed, as well as others, agreed. Biden likely underpaid himself and by a substantial amount. After all, in 2017, Biden paid himself only $145,000 in salary, roughly 37% drop from his $230,000 a year salary as vice president the prior year. But in 2017, he also reaped more than $10 million in corporate profits at year's end. The low salary vis-a-vis his amount of profits, particularly when all the income came from his own intellectual work product, as opposed to, say, a factory or restaurant where dozens of other employees contribute to the business, all suggest Biden violated the IRS guidelines. Yet Glenn Kessler, Washington Post, said that whether his tax strategy was especially aggressive or par for the course is also a matter of interpretation. The thin read Kessler uses to cling to this position stems less from the fact that Biden's Actions were appropriate, and more from the fact that several experts said the IRS wouldn't bother to challenge Biden's questionable conduct. But speeding is still speeding whether a cop pulls you over for it or not. So why no audit? That gets the, this, the most interesting nugget in Glenn Kessler's piece at the Washington Post. A White House official said the IRS declined to do any audits of the Biden tax returns 2017, 2018, or 2019. Now, presidents are subject to automatic audit only for those returns filed while in office, and Kessler reported the returns from the time he was out of office did not get extra IRS scrutiny. But a New York Times article last year confirmed the validity of statements Trump had made about his tax returns remaining under audit. Quoting now, the records that the Times reviewed matches lawyer's statement 
during the 2016 campaign, the audits of Trump's returns for 2009 and subsequent years remained open, unquote. So why did Trump's returns get subjected to what the New York Times called a decade-long battle with the IRS, while Biden's returns got a free pass from the IRS, notwithstanding the articles and public scrutiny of Biden's conduct? Does the IRS, as it claims, lack the resources to investigate items like the Biden controversy, or is something more nefarious or explicitly political afoot? Of course, there's one way to find out. If House Democrats want to investigate the way the IRS administers presidential tax returns, the stated claim behind their subpoena for Trump's taxes, they can request documents from the IRS regarding how it handled Biden's returns for 2017, 2018, 2019. For instance, they can study whether the public articles about Biden's use of this loophole prompted any reassessment of his returns by, by IRS staff or should have. Then again, given the way House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal, Democrat of Massachusetts, ignored questions about Biden's taxes when the, the issue first emerged two years ago, he and his colleagues might want to keep their focus solely on Trump. But a Democrat majority focused on Trump's taxes to the exclusion of Biden's might give Trump added grounds to challenge and quash the subpoenas in court as a political fishing expedition. Of course, another possible scenario looms. If Republicans take control of the House next year, they can use any legal precedents set in the case of Trump's taxes to investigate Biden's. In other words... Democrats should be careful what they wish for on subpoenaing information regarding presidential tax returns because they just might get it. Uh-oh. Because, I mean, if that happens, then they won't be happy. Now, trust me, they won't be happy. Oh, here's, a, here's an article from uh, The Federalist back uh, in March, March 28th of this year. Chris Wallace falsely claims New Georgia law bans drinking water while in line for voting. You know, I got to tell you, a lot of these people get paid to lie. They just do. A lot of these people get paid to lie. They just do. So, what's uh, what's worse? Getting paid to lie, or uh, getting paid to kill people? Beth Brelge over the epictimes.com as new article came out of the weekend with ivermectin in hand. Wife dies while, wife dies while husband begs hospital to administer. I thought, no, 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 I thought, I thought doctors and hospitals, they're supposed to take the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. So why are they killing people? Why are they killing people?
David DeLuca, Sicklerville, New Jersey, will never know if the ivermectin prescribed by an out-of-state doctor for his wife would have saved her life. 62-year-old Colleen DeLuca died of COVID-19 on October 10th, Jefferson, Washington Township Hospital in Sewell, New Jersey, before her husband could get a court order to administer the drug. Ivermectin has helped in some cases, but across the United States, many hospitals don't include it in their COVID protocol for treatment and refuse to use it even as a last-ditch effort on a dying patient. Buffalo, New York attorney Ralph Lorigo has spent the last 11 months handling cases where the family wants to try ivermectin and, most, and must get a court order to force hospitals to allow the drug to be administered. DeLuca had attorney Lorigo draw up papers for court, but because Lorigo doesn't practice in New Jersey, he instructed DeLuca to find a New Jersey attorney to file the papers and handle the case. However, DeLuca couldn't find an attorney willing to take the case. Grief-stricken 62-year-old David DeLuca told the Epic Times, they kept telling me the magistrates of New Jersey will never let this go through. Now I've got to go through the next 25 years without her. My three-year-old granddaughter kisses her photo at night. Oh, man. Break your heart. David DeLuca finally recalls a day in 10th grade American history class when the pretty new girl took a seat near his. Colleen's family was in the military and she had just moved back from Germany. She was quiet but loved to listen to him talk. By senior year, they were in item and went to senior prom together. And when he got a scholarship to Bucknell University, University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, he couldn't imagine life without her. He arranged for housing and a justice of the peace. And in 1977, the 218-year-old high school. In 1977, the 218-year-old high school sweetheart shocked their families and eloped. David DeLuca said, everybody said it wasn't going to work. But... Ultimately, my parents came to love her as a daughter. They went home for Thanksgiving and were loaded down with hand-me-down household items, proving their family was getting used to the union. He worked two jobs. She helped him type school papers and cook dinner for David and three college buddies who would become lifelong friends. By the time he graduated, they had three children under the age of four, Altogether, they had six children. The last two were homeschooled all the way through graduation. And now they're ten grandchildren. Colleen loved giggling with her grandchildren and was big on offering hugs. Devout Catholics, they intentionally moved near a church offering mass in Latin and were deeply involved with their faith. Colleen joined an order of the Carmelite nuns for married women. When the China virus appeared, they worried. Colleen had beat cancer twice and had asthma and other health concerns. David had health issues too. David said, we knew we were high-risk patients. Colleen sewed 500 face masks and gave them all away. They took all the precautions they could take. She stayed home most of the time. They wore masks. They disinfected. 
But when vaccines became available, they couldn't take them because of direct ties to aborted fetal cells. That sounds familiar. That's why I didn't take them. In mid-September, Colleen started showing asthma symptoms. They called her pulmonologist, and she prescribed the usual asthma medicines, including her nebulizer. David said we weren't thinking COVID at the time. It was not unusual for Colleen to have an asthma attack. She had complex breathing issues and used a nasal pap and an oxygen concentrator when she slept. Soon she was coughing, and they started to monitor her oxygen saturation levels. David did what he could to take care of her, but on September 21st, he suddenly felt like he had a brick wall. David said, I went to bed immediately. The next morning, he got tested and learned he had COVID, and the doctor told him certainly Colleen had it too. A general practitioner prescribed the host of medicines, including hydroxychloroquine. September 23rd, Colleen's oxygen level dropped to 88%. Um, <clears throat> David DeLuca said, I have to take you to the hospital. She said, if you take me to the hospital, I'm going to die there. I said, if I don't take you, you're going to die here. She wanted to sleep at home through the night, but he checked her level again, and it already dropped to 86%. Two weeks. From COVID to take her himself, David called an ambulance. The ambulance crew had Colleen sitting up on a gurney with an oxygen mask on her mouth so she couldn't so he couldn't kiss her goodbye. Her eyes looked scared, tracing the sign of the cross. On her forehead with his thumb, David blessed her. They waved goodbye, and that was the last time he saw her awake. The hospital had her on a CPAP machine with full oxygen, and at home, Dave was also suffering from COVID. September 28th, he got a call from a doctor at the hospital. They were going to put Colleen on a ventilator, and she wanted to talk to David. Her voice was weak and competing with the oxygen machine. She said, I'm going on the ventilator. Bury me in my ceremonial scapular. I love you and the kids. David started calling friends asking them to pray for Colleen. One friend told him about ivermectin. He asked his general practitioner for it, and although David feels his doctor was doing his best, the doctor said the data did not show it would help and did not prescribe it. David got a prescription for himself and Colleen through a telehealth meeting with a doctor from Oklahoma. David took his ivermectin and in a day started to feel better, although today he still has an occasional cough. He asked the hospital to give Colleen ivermectin. David said, they said, no, it's not part of our protocol. It doesn't work. I told the doctors, you need to dispense this medicine. They said, no. Now he was trying to find an attorney trying to convince the hospital to use the ivermectin he already had. He was trying to get permission to go in his wife's room he says they would not let him visit her because she was contagious, but since he already had COVID, he felt he should have been able to get in. Eventually, he was able to see her through a window, but he wanted to hold her hand and let her hear his voice. Jefferson Waters, remember the name, Jefferson Washington Township Hospital said it does not comment on individual patients and when asked about its ivermectin policy, had no comment. David went to church early on October 10th. 
He got two calls from the hospital just before mass started. The first call let him know Colleen was in renal failure. He said he would go to the hospital right after church. David recalls a second call saying, you don't understand, your wife is dying. He went directly to the hospital, and this time they let him into the room with a gown and mask. He said, I could see she was going to die. I called my kids and grandkids from all over the United States on a video call. Colleen had been, had been weaned off sedation. David said she was awake and she was suffering. David DeLuca was an Air Force pilot for 28 years and flew combat missions during which he was responsible for hundreds of lives. He was trained to make life and death decisions in seconds, but he never thought he would be in this situation. He allowed them to remove her from the ventilator. Here's the quote. I said, Lean, I can't do this to you, and she squeezed my hand. We pulled the vent, and she died within 30 seconds. I couldn't hug her because of all the stuff around her. I blessed her. His sorrow, pardon me, his sorrow turns to anger when he thinks about the experience. He feels the hospital expected her to die as soon as she went on the ventilator. He said, in my opinion, they gave up on her on day one. Their protocols killed her. The legal system won't do its job. People need to know ivermectin is out there. I want her story to be told because I want other people to be protected and not go through what my kids went through, losing their mother. I trusted the system to help, and they didn't care. That's uh, that's an article over at theepochtimes.com. It's spelled E-P-O-C-H, theepochtimes.com, entitled, With Ivermectin in Hand, Wife Dies While Husband Begs Hospital to Administer. So, um, some people think everybody has their price. And I certainly think the uh, hospital administrators at Jefferson, Washington Township Hospital in Sewell, New Jersey, have their price because I think they're willing to let people die rather than give them what could possibly save their lives. A lot of money in this, y'all. A lot of money in this. Let me just tell you. Um, I got a personal connection here. Forgive me if you've heard this one before. But a few months ago, my uh, my son Andy was in a group text with uh, me and a couple of my brothers and another friend. And he said, y'all, please pray for me. I have COVID. I haven't eaten solid food in five days. And I was alarmed My wife was crying. I called my friend, Dr. Daniel Dawby, who was our family physician in Panama City, Florida, when we used to live down there. Fortunately, Andy still lives in Florida. And Dr. Dawby prescribed Andy hydroxychloroquine 
ivermectin and uh, steroid to make them work faster. And the CVS pharmacy in Niceville, Florida, slow walked at almost 24 hours. So by the time Andy got the meds, he was gasping for air. And we think we may have almost lost him. But by the grace of God, slowly, over a few weeks, the ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and steroid worked and saved Andrew's life. It is probably the biggest scandal in my life that there's so many hospitals and so many doctors who would rather see their patients die, they kill them, they're murderers, in my humble opinion, than allow them treatment that might save their lives. And why is that? Why is that? The only thing I, uh, the only thing I can think of is the money. What other possible reason could there be other than the money? So that's something to chew on, and I don't know. If Republicans take back the House and the Senate, I don't know if they'll do anything about it. I don't know if they'll do anything about it. So... I, uh, you know, they always say they always say follow the money, right? They always say follow the money. Okay, let's follow the money. I got an article here from uh, World Tribune. Researcher Andrew Hill's conflict, a $40 million Gates Foundation grant versus a half million human lives. In a stunning admission, virologist Dr. Andrew Hill acknowledged in a Zoom call that publication of his study could lead to the deaths of at least a half million people. In defending his reversal on the effectiveness of ivermectin, as a treatment for COVID-19, he discussed his difficult situation and said, I've got this role where I'm supposed to produce this paper and we're in a very difficult, delicate balance. The incident is recounted in Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s New York Times bestseller, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. Andrew Hill, Ph.D., Senior Visiting Research Fellow, and pharmacology at Liverpool University, also an advisor for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation. As a researcher for the World Health Organization, Andrew Hill, evaluating ivermectin, wielded enormous influence over international guidance for the drug's use. He had previously authored an analysis of ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19 that found the drug overwhelmingly effective. On January 6, 2021, Dr. Hill testified enthusiastically before the NIH COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines Panel in support of ivermectin's use. Within a month, however, 
Hill found himself in what he describes as a tricky situation. Under pressure from his funding sponsors, Hill then published an unfavorable study. Ironically, he used the same sources as in the original study, only only the conclusions had changed. Shortly before he published, Dr. Tess Laurie, director of the evidence-based medicine consultancy in Bath, England, and one of the world's leading medical research analysts, contacted Hill via Zoom and recorded the call. Laurie had learned of his new position and reached out to try to rectify the situation in a remarkable exchange. Hill admitted his manipulated study would likely delay the uptake of ivermectin in the UK and the United States, but said he hoped his doing so would only set the life-saving drug's acceptance back by about six weeks, after which he was willing to give his support for the, the use of the drug. He'll affirm that the rate of death at that time was 15,000 people per day at the 80% recovery rate using the drug, which Hill and Laurie discussed earlier in the call. The number of preventable deaths incurred by such a delay would be staggering as many as 504,000. Laurie was unable to persuade Hill, who instead of joining her team as lead author, went ahead and published his manipulated findings. Four days before publication, Hill's sponsor, Unitaid, gave the University of Liverpool, Hill's employer, $40 million. Unitaid, it turns out, was also an author of the conclusions of Hill's study. In the call, Laurie berated Dr. Hill's study as flawed, rushed, not properly put together, and bad research, which Hill, which Hill appears not to have denied. Instead, when pressed, he admitted his sponsor, Unitaid, was an unacknowledged author of conclusions. He told Laurie, Unitaid has a say in the conclusions of the paper. Yeah. So Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote this book, explained Unitaid is a quasi-governmental advocacy organization funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and several countries to lobby governments to finance the purchase of medicines from pharmaceutical multinationals for distribution. In Africa, he reports Dr. Laurie knew that to make its ivermectin determination, World Health Organization would rely on Dr. Hill's study and another study from McMaster University known as the Together Trial. McMaster was hopelessly and irredeemably conflicted. NIH gave McMaster over a million dollars in 2020 and 2021. A separate group of McMaster University scientists was at the time engaged in developing their own COVID vaccine. An effort that would never pay dividends if the World Health Organization recommended ivermectin as standard of care. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was funding the massive TOGETHER trial testing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and other potential drugs against COVID in Brazil and other locations. Critics accused Gates and the McMaster researchers of designing that study to make ivermectin fail in other words the mcmaster researchers just like andrew hill knew that a positive appraisal of ivermectin would cost their university millions of dollars in a terse exchange laurie laid out the ethical and personal risks for hill 
Uh, This is just, this is flabbergasting to me. This is flabbergasting to me. Laurie said, I really, really wish, and you've explained quite clearly, clearly to me in both what you've been saying and in your body language that you're not entirely comfortable with your conclusions and that you're in a tricky position because of whatever influence people are having on you and including the people who have paid you and who have basically written that conclusion for you. Hill responds, you've just got to understand I'm in a difficult situation. I'm trying to steer a middle ground, and it's extremely hard. Laurie, yeah, middle ground. The middle ground is not a middle ground. You've taken a position right to the other extreme, calling for further trials that are going to kill people. So this will come out, and you will be culpable. Much like two weeks to flatten the curve in the intervening year, Hill appears to have gone all in on a deception originally envisioned to last only six weeks. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. reports that on October 1st, 2021, Hill resurfaced on Twitter touting his upcoming lecture, ironically titled Effects of Bias and Potential Medical Fraud in the Promotion of Ivermectin. Dr. Pierre Corey of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance commented, Andrew is apparently making a living now accusing the doctors and scientists who support ivermectin of medical fraud. Regulatory acceptance of ivermectin did not delay only six weeks. Instead, almost a year later, it has still not been approved by health agencies in the United Kingdom or in the United States. Instead, the World Health Organization, CDC, NIH, and FDA have suppressed the drug's use. Dr. Pierre Corey added, Hill and his backers are some of the worst people in human history. They are responsible for the deaths of millions. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's maddening. It's maddening. Oh, 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 you know what? I almost forgot, but there's something you got to hear. There's something you got to hear. So uh, Glenn Beck was on Tucker Carlson's show last week. And uh, what he, uh, what, what he, what he uncovered was, 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 was astonishing. What he uncovered was astonishing. And um and you need to hear it. This is only a minute forty five seconds long. Okay. But this is the bombshell. which is why nobody's talking about it today. Now, forgive me. I don't have time to listen to talk radio anymore. I wish I did. So, you know, if somebody in talk radio is talking about it, then, okay, great. But I guarantee you Fox News Radio 
CNN, MSNBC. Um, Tucker obviously allowed Glenn Beck to come on his show Friday night and break this news, but I'll bet you nobody else at Fox News is talking about it. You, uh, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. We didn't know anything about this in December. We were starting to get rumblings. China said there was some sort of an outbreak on December 31st. But Peter, De- I'm sorry, not Peter Desik, Dr. Barrick signs a uh, government um, deal with Moderna. I want to I read it exactly to you. This, this deal was uh, made, it's confidential, it's 100 and, I don't know, 58 pages long. Um, it is, if I skip to page 104, they are entering a specific private confidential agreement. The NIH appears to be transferring technology to Dr. Barrick, but th- what they're making clear is, quote, mRNA coronavirus vaccine candidates developed and jointly owned by NIAID and Moderna. Now, this is weird because it's two weeks later that we know there's a problem. They sign that deal two weeks before, and they sign it with the doctor who happened to be a partner with the bat lady in Wuhan. Here's where it gets really dark. These are the same group of people that in the end of January begin to have meetings, and they shut down and begin to smear anyone who's looking into the lab leak theory. They, they establish that's not true, don't even look there. It, it appears to be collusion. I, you know, we've passed this on to several people in uh, Congress and the Senate. We know Rand Paul ha- is on this, and Dr. Fauci has some answers to give. Got it. So clearly Glenn Beck will be talking about it on his show, and Tucker Carlson allowed Glenn Beck to come on his show. But um, the whole thing's a setup. The whole thing's a setup. I played for you earlier on earlier shows, audio from videos of uh, Fauci years earlier talking about upcoming pandemics and what to do to change our healthcare system using a pandemic and vaccines and the whole deal. So now you know that Fauci's National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases signed an agreement with Moderna to jointly own the vaccine weeks before the pandemic started. Yeah, the same Fauci who lied under oath about not not funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan. That Fauci. We that, didn't that Fauci. know. No, 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 no. I don't want to play it. it again. Sorry. That Fauci. So, uh, I hope if Trump runs again, that he will at some point admit that he was wrong to trust Fauci and Burks because he calls them con artists now. But I hope he'll admit 
at some point he was wrong to trust them. He was wrong to shut anything down. You know what I'm saying? Because, uh, see, that opened the door for some of these big states to uh, do the universal mail-in balloting with the uh, the drop boxes that were uh, unmonitored. And, you know, that's one of the ways they stole the election. Oh, no, and you, you say it a little bit louder for the folks in the back. That's one of the ways they stole the election. No, no, Time Magazine. February 2021 did a 20-page article on how they stole the election. Just that they said, well, we didn't steal it. We fortified it because we had to do everything we possibly could to make sure that the country didn't have to go through four more years of Donald Trump. They stole it, and they bragged about it, and they rubbed your face in it. But you're not allowed to say that. I mean, God bless him, even Tucker's not allowed to say that. We all know it's true. We all know it's true. So Scott Adams, uh, the guy who writes the Dilbert comic strip, he's out there on Twitter saying, one of the best applications of mass brainwashing in modern times is the idea that the January 6th protesters wanted something other than a fair and transparent election result. So you know how I told you earlier in the show about the uh, FBI targeting Republican congressmen now? They indicted a guy, Fortenberry from Nebraska. So the House Judiciary Republicans, Republicans of the House Judiciary Committee, go out there on Twitter and say, does anyone actually trust the FBI? And Jeff Carlson over the epictimes.com says, no. And that's a hugely serious problem that should have been addressed a long time ago. Old enough to remember when the Republicans held the House, the Senate, the White House, 33 governor seats, 68 state legislature chambers, and the only thing they did, the only thing they did was line up with the Democrats against Trump. Couldn't have cared less about the FBI, could they? Could they? No, not at all. Now, my buddy, my hero, Dan Bongino, the guy who let me on his show November 5th and gave me 12 minutes to tell 300 radio stations about how Cumulus fired me over the uh, not taking the jab. He doesn't just have a nationally syndicated radio talk show on 300 radio stations. He also has a show also has a show on Sunday nights on Fox called Unfiltered. Yeah. And last night, good old Dan Bongino had Rand Paul on. And it went something like this. For having me. You know, my colleague uh, Chuck Schumer left out one thing. When they were denying that the earth went around the sun, it was the government denying that. And it was an independent scientist trying to set them straight. So the danger is when you let science be controlled by government or by one sort of monolithic individual like Fauci, it really doesn't have anything to do with science. Science usually discovers the truth eventually. But when uh, science is dictated by the government, that's when you get, uh, you know, flat earthers. 
Yeah, I mean, they seem to love the character assassination and insults, Senator. But listen, as you well know, being an active proponent of uh, God-given rights and liberty, liberty is a zero-sum game. You can't have a big sphere of individual liberty and a big government at the same time. And what's really concerning me, Senator, is these constantly moving goalposts, which don't seem to be grounded in science at all, keep shrinking the sphere of individual liberty and empowering more and more government. And it's not going to stop until we stop it. There doesn't seem to be an endpoint here. I don't think it's been about science for a long time. It's really been about conditioning the American uh, individual to submit to government. And you're right, it never ends. The, the goalposts will continue to change, and ultimately more and more of your health care will be controlled. You know, under socialized medicine, when we centralize all controls, most of these decisions are made by government bureaucrats like Fauci. So if you love the dictates on vaccines, you'll love it when Fauci's in charge of who can be dialyzed. In England, for many years, they wouldn't dialyze you after age 50 because they thought, well, you don't have much left to live and over 50, you're over the hill. And I, I personally resent that now that I'm well past 50. But the thing is, nobody in government should be making those decisions. And once they do, it gets into rationing and arbitrary decisions by uh, little autocrats like Fauci. And it's a huge mistake to let this happen. And we do need to fight back. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And, um, I mean, I'm doing everything I can. I'm doing everything I can. And if you uh, if you like what we're doing, you want to support us, here's a little thing. Thanks for listening to the Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Many of you have asked, how can we help support the show? Really easy. Go to DocWashburnShow.com and click Become a Patron at the top right corner of the website or click the Podbean logo where it says, Be My Patron on Podbean. We sure do appreciate your support of the Doc Washburn Show. Yeah, we do. We do. We appreciate that very much. Now, um, about this time every day, um, Podbean cuts off a live stream. If we go past like um, two hours and six minutes, everything is still on the podcast. It's downloaded later, but Podbean cuts off a live stream. They say if more people who listen live send you a gift, which is not monetary. I don't even understand how it works, but we'll let you stay on longer. But anyway, we apologize to the live stream people listening in. All right. Um, now, there's an idea here about all the hoops they're trying to make us jump through because of a disease of the 99.8% survival rate. Okay? And there's a woman who put together a remarkable remarkable video. It's less than two minutes long. Going through the things that they tell you you have to do. And about halfway through it, she is predicting what they will eventually tell you. And it's, it's eerie. It's spooky. It goes something like this. We need you to stay in your home for a couple weeks. It's for the greater good. 
We need you to close your business just for a short time. It's for the greater good. We need you to stay home just a little bit longer than two weeks. It's, it's for the greater good. We need you to wear this on your face. It's, it's for the greater good. We need you to wear two of these on your face. It's for the greater good. We need you to inject this into your body. It's for the greater good. We need you to spend the holidays alone. It's for the greater good. You must inject this into your body if you want to feed your family. It's for the greater good. We need you to stop eating that. It's not good for the environment. It's for the greater good. Now you see the transition that's happened here from things they've already tried to foist on us to things she's predicting they will be wanting to foist upon us. Got it? They can get away with what they've gotten away already. Where will they stop? They won't stop. Here's more. We need you to stop driving your car and flying. It's for the greater good. We need you to stop heating your home so often. It's for the greater good. We need you to stop saying that. It's hurting some people's feelings. This is for the greater good. We need you to stop having children. It's not good for the planet. This is for the greater good. We need you to stop talking about your faith. It's offending people. This is for the greater good. Do you have any doubt they want to do this? We need to separate you from your children because you're not complying. This is for the greater good. We need to hold you in a facility for a little while for not cooperating. This is for the greater good. 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 Yeah. I had to share that with you. That's um, apparently, I guess it's a YouTube channel. I don't know if she's still on YouTube or not, if they kicked her off. But she goes by Conservative Mama, M-O-M-M-A. You might want to look it up somewhere. That just kind of stunned me. Stunned me. All right. Um, that having been said. That having been said. There's so much going on. There's so much to talk about. But I, I guess all good things make, must come to an end each day. Never forget this video of a guy named Ray Epps. Looks like he's about 60 years old. The night before January 6th at the Capitol with a MAGA hat on telling everybody we got to get into the Capitol tomorrow. And people yelling at him, fed, 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 because they know he's a fed. And the FBI knows who he is, and they know where he is, and they will not arrest him because obviously he's one of theirs. He's one of theirs, right? January 6th of the setup, and they are persecuting as many Trump supporters as they possibly can and they're keeping them without bail, better part of a year, charged with most of them, nonviolent misdemeanors. A lot of them don't even have trial dates yet. 
And um, nobody in Congress, hardly anybody, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Georgia, Matt Gates, Florida, Paul Gosar, Arizona, Louis Gohmert, Texas. I don't know of anybody else that is calling attention to their plight. I don't know of anybody else who is. So, but I, I, I plan to continue to. And I plan to support candidates for Congress who intend to, like my friend, retired, retired Colonel Conrad Reynolds, who is um, challenging the odious rhino French Hill in the Arkansas Republican primary for the 2nd District, the U.S. House, coming up in May. All right, that having been said, you've been listening to Episode 44 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier, the 10th. Well, that's the way it is. Monday, December 13th, 2021.